0: Despite the vast majority of China's population being of Han Chinese descent, there are in fact several hundred ethnic groups contained within its borders. As of November of 2020, the country's population stood at a whopping 1.412 billion people, the largest of any nation in the world, with the Han majority making up 91.11% and the various minorities comprising 8.89%. Of these minorities, 55 are officially recognized by the Chinese government. Though these people have called the country home for centuries, they are not always treated fairly or equally in the eyes of the law. In fact, the current regime under President Xi Jinping has targeted all those groups that, he feels, are not inherently or traditionally Chinese. If my listeners recall my previous episode on the Kaifeng Jews, this includes Christian, Jewish, and Muslim populations, as well as various aboriginal and nomadic tribes and anyone he deems as quote-unquote foreign, regardless of their standing in society or their history in China. Of all the groups faced with this mounting persecution, however, perhaps none have it as bad as the Uyghurs. A Turkic ethnic group with their own autonomous region in northwest China's Xinjiang province, their ancestral homeland, they have, for the past X amount of years, been rounded up and sent to various labor camps deep within the nation's interior, where they faced rape, starvation, beatings, and above all, forced re-education in order to align them with communist ideals and do away with their traditions. But whether Jinping likes it or not, the Uyghurs are as Chinese as the Han majority, with a rich and lengthy history that likely stretches back several millennia. Who are the Uyghur people? What are their origins? And what future, if any, do they face in China? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. As there's a great deal of contention between the Uyghurs and their Han Chinese oppressors, the origins of this fascinating people and culture remain somewhat obscure. Uyghur historians, for example, assert that their presence in what's now Xinjiang Province, specifically the Tarim Basin, a region historically referred to as East Turkestan, dates back some 6,400 years. This claim, however, is contradicted by Chinese historians, who firmly state that the Uyghurs migrated to northwest China in the 9th century following the collapse of the Uyghur Khaganate in Mongolia, thus displacing the Han Chinese who had lived in the region since the Han Dynasty, 202 BC to AD 220. For a more impartial point of view though, one need only look to Western historians and scholars, who believe that modern Uyghurs are not in fact descended from the lineage of those from the fallen Khaganate, but instead can trace their roots to a number of ancient peoples who have lived in Xinjiang for thousands of years. So with all this conflicting information, what is known of the Uyghur's origins? Well, for starters, they are a Turkic ethnic group, a diverse collection of peoples that also includes the modern Turkish, Azerbaijani, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, Uzbek and Turkmen populations scattered throughout southwestern and central Asia. The origin of the Turkic peoples is the subject of ongoing debate, but is widely believed to have had its genesis in northeast Asia, in at least the third millennium BC. Descended from agricultural communities in the region, they migrated, at around this time, into Mongolia, where they adopted a pastoral lifestyle that, by the first millennium BC, had evolved into nomadic confederations that rode on horseback. So skilled were these equestrian nomads that, in the ensuing centuries, they managed to conquer much of Central Asia, incorporating several different cultures into their ethnic group. As such, to this day, many Turkic peoples share cultural traits, historical experiences, and ancestry from a common gene pool, as well as linguistic characteristics. It was from this vast ethnic soup that the Uyghurs emerged, Descended from the ancient Tiele tribes, themselves of Turkic origin, of Mongolia, northern China, and the Altai Mountains that border China and Russia, they swept through the Central Asian steppe through conquest and migration, forging a unique identity when they absorbed the original Indo-European inhabitants and speakers of the region, namely the Tocharians of present-day Iran, into their own culture. These Uyghurs initially practiced a form of shamanism, as attested to in the discovery of several ancient mummies in Xinjiang's Tarim Basin. These mummies, which study and dating have placed at around 1800 BC, at the start of the Bronze Age, were prepared and buried ceremoniously in accordance with shamanistic practices and rituals. Throughout the first millennium BC, these early Uyghurs swept through northwest China and what are now the eastern Stan countries, incorporating several Iranian tribes into their confederation and further solidifying their complex yet fascinating genetic and cultural background, before permanently settling in what's now Xinjiang province. With the absorption of these Iranian nomads into their group, the Uyghurs soon abandoned their native shamanism in favor of Manichaeism, a religion founded in Iran in the 3rd century AD by the prophet Mani. Their presence in northwest China eventually gave rise to their own sovereign state. Known as the Kingdom of Kocho, and later Uyghurstan, it was founded in AD 843 in the Tarpan area of Xinjiang by a combination of the local Uyghur population, as well as those Tiele tribespeople fleeing the toppled Uyghur Khaganate in Mongolia. At this time, Kocho's citizens began converting to Buddhism and, by the late 9th century, it had become a predominantly Buddhist state. This kingdom lasted from its foundation all the way through the 14th century and enjoyed the longest duration of any power in the region before or since. The only interruption it endured was the period of Mongol conquest beginning in the early 13th century. Even then, however, it enjoyed a considerably greater amount of autonomy than other regions within the Mongol Empire, with the Uyghurs playing an important role as civil servants to the great Khan. Ironically, it was an offshoot of the Mongol Empire, the Chagatai Khanate, that ultimately overthrew the Kingdom of Kocho in 1353. But of course, the Uyghur story doesn't end there. With the conquest of their sovereign state in the mid-14th century, one of the biggest changes in their culture took place, one that has remained an integral part of their identity ever since. Tukhluk Temur, the then ruler of the Chagatai Khanate, had, in the early 14th century, converted to Islam. It wasn't long before other Mongol nobles followed suit. Therefore, when his son, Khizr Hoja, claimed Kocho in his father's name, Islam became the state's primary religion, and by the 16th century, the Uyghurs themselves had become followers of the prophet Muhammad. Their language, too, reflected this change. Having originally been written in the old Turkic alphabet, followed by the Sogdian script of early medieval Iran, the latter was soon replaced by a Perso-Arabic writing system that had also become the primary written language of Central Asia. As you may have guessed by now, their originally itinerant nature, combined with their being on the cusp of several empires, meant that the Uyghurs were constantly absorbed into different societies. In the late 17th century, with the conquest of the remnants of the Chagatai Khanate by the Manchu-led Qing dynasty of China, Xinjiang fell into Chinese hands. But the end of Mongol rule in the region was far from peaceful or pleasant. The Qing Emperor's solution was to exterminate the remaining Mongolian Buddhist populations in northwest China and replace them with various other ethnic groups, including Han Chinese, the indigenous Shibe, Kazakhs, several groups of Turkic Muslims, and of course, more Uyghurs. By the middle of the 18th century, a third of Xinjiang's population was comprised of Han and Hui Chinese in the northern part of the province, while the remaining two-thirds in the southern half, specifically the Tarim Basin, was Uyghur. As the Qing single-handedly wiped out the area's Mongolian Buddhist population, Xinjiang became a haven of sorts for Muslim peoples, who came from within the empire as well as outside it, thanks to its tolerance and acceptance of Islam. As historian Henry Schwartz put it, quote, "...the Qing victory over the remains of the Chagatai Khanate was, in a certain sense, a victory for Islam." But it wasn't long before tensions broke out between the Uyghurs and their new Manchu overlords. Although by 1765 they had established a presence in the capital of Beijing, which was clustered around a mosque in close proximity to the Forbidden City, several cases of abuse of power and misrule had caused them to revolt. The resulting Ush rebellion that same year was an attempt by the Uyghurs to reclaim their rightful homeland in Xinjiang. A fatwa, or holy war, was waged by Uyghur religious and political leaders against the Manchu government. The emperor at the time, Qianlong, ordered that the rebel strongholds in the region be completely laid to waste. As a result, their populations were decimated, with the men being massacred and the women and children enslaved. It was the first instance of violence against them perpetrated by the Chinese government, and sadly, wouldn't be the last. About a century later, tensions rose between Xinjiang and the Manchus yet again, when the Dungan revolt broke out. This revolt, led by Yakub Beg of the nearby Uzbek Khanate of Kokand, drove Qing officials from the southern part of the province and quickly established an independent kingdom known as Yeti-Shar, or Country of Seven Cities in Uzbek. For 12 years, between 1865 and 1877, this tiny sovereign state thrived, at which time the Uyghurs aligned themselves with ruler Yaku Beg and his people, due to the harsh treatment they had endured and continued to sustain at the hands of their Manchu leaders. But in 1876, large Qing forces under the leadership of one General Zuo Tang set to put a stop to the revolt and, a year later, restored order to the region. The dawning of the 20th century saw great socio-political upheaval, not just for the Uyghurs, but for all of China. In 1912, after centuries under an imperial system, the Qing Dynasty, and therefore the Empire itself, came to an end and was replaced by the Republic of China, the first democracy in the nation's history. Though shaky from the start, this fledgling government sought to promote and extend the principles of freedom and liberty to its citizens, but did so with little success. Following the fall of the empire, a sort of unofficial feudal system emerged, with warlords assuming control of various provinces and regions throughout the country. Xinjiang, for example, fell under the tyrannical rule of one Yang Senxin. As to be expected, the Uyghurs were treated little better under his authority, as they had been under Qing sovereignty. By 1920, Turkic Muslim reformers from Russia had come to their aid to challenge and question Senxin's leadership. This was followed by several uprisings throughout the ensuing decade. Then, in 1931, their years of struggle bore partial fruit, with the establishment of an independent government in the Khotan region of Xinjiang. Two years later, on November 12, 1933, said region was officially renamed the Turkish Islamic Republic of East Turkestan, also known as the First East Turkestan Republic, and while predominantly Uyghur, also contained a mixed population of Kazakhs, Uzbeks, and Kyrgyz alas however this first attempt at independence was short-lived when ironically a muslim division of the chinese army known as the thirty-sixth division under the leadership of generals ma zhang kong and ma fuyuan themselves muslim attacked the newly formed autonomous state in the early days of nineteen thirty four it soon fell, and three years later, in April of 1937, what was left of the constituents of the First East Turkestan Republic rose up once again in an uprising known as the Islamic Rebellion of Xinjiang, the outcome of which led to the establishment of a second independent republic before it too was overthrown just six months later. By this time, the province was under the control of warlord shang Shi Kai, and following the uprising, he purged the region of some 50,000 to a 100,000 of its citizens, namely Uyghurs. Though this was a crushing blow, to say nothing of a large-scale genocide, Shikai's horrific rule did little to deter the Uyghurs and their supporters. Seven years later, they regrouped once more, this time with the help from the Soviet Union, in the Ili Rebellion of October of 1944. A month later, on November 12th, the Second East Turkestan Republic was established. Though this independent sovereign state would last longer than its predecessor, it too met its end just five years later, when, in the summer of 1949, the Soviets turned on the Uyghurs and purged the republic of 30 of its top leaders. In addition, on August 27th that same year, five more of its officials died in a mysterious plane crash. On October 13th, just short of two weeks after Chairman Mao Zedong declared the establishment of the Communist People's Republic of China, the People's Liberation Army entered the province and the East Turkestan National Army was incorporated into their own, thus ending the Second East Turkestan Republic for good. Chairman Mao's first order of business in the region was the creation of the Ili-Kazakh Autonomous Prefecture, to which he appointed Saifuddin Azizi as its first communist governor. Many Uyghurs who were loyal to the former Republic of China went into exile in the west, mainly Turkey, Western Europe, and of course Canada and the United States. Later, the southwestern part of Xinjiang province was renamed the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, and continues to be known as such to this day. However, since the late 1940s, the struggle for Uyghur independence has grown into a full-blown separatist movement, with those in favor of the region's sovereignty claiming that the Second East Turkestan Republic was illegally incorporated into communist China. Many pro-Uyghur factions have arisen as well, each with differing and specific visions for an independent Uyghur state. There's the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, for example, who wished to create a pan-Islamic state for any and all Chinese Muslims, not just those of Uyghur or Turkic descent. On the opposite side of the spectrum, The East Turkestan Liberation Organization vies for a pan-Turkic state, in which Uzbeks, Kazakhs, and Kyrgyz, along with Uyghurs, would solely be welcome. Yet another group, the East Turkestan Independence Movement, simply wishes to re-establish an independent Uyghur state, much like the First and Second East Turkestan Republics. While these three groups often butt heads, what unites them all is the desire for justice and liberty, which has greatly been denied them under the Chinese government. Fast forward to March fourteenth, 2013. Xi Jinping is elected president of the People's Republic of China. A year later, he imposes restrictions on the country's Uyghur population, essentially halting every aspect of their lives, including religious practices. In Xinjiang in particular, police surveillance is expanded to be leery of signs of quote-unquote religious extremism. Such signs include the possession of books about the Uyghur people, abstinence from drinking or smoking, ownership of a prayer rug, possession of the Quran, and even the growing of beards. To add to the police state feel of it all, it's even believed that cameras have been installed in several Uyghur families' homes to add salt to the wounds already sustained by the Uyghurs. Anywhere from 120,000 to a million are detained in concentration camps in the Tarim Basin. Dubbed re-education camps by the Chinese government, the prisoners are subjected to various forms of torture and violence, including being forced to sing songs praising the Chinese Communist Party, brutal beatings, rapes, and even penning essays about the ills of Uyghur culture. When word of this fell upon the ears of the Human Rights Watch in 2017, the organization issued a statement accusing the People's Republic of China of cultural genocide and demanding that China free the prisoners from these unlawful detention camps and that they be shut down immediately. Of course, this proved about as effective as you would imagine. By 2018, the operation had, in fact, continued as planned with doubled efforts, and satellite images of southern Xinjiang revealed that over 24 Uyghur religious sites had been destroyed. While the Chinese government initially denied the camps' existence, they soon changed their tune, claiming that they were simply to combat terrorism and provide vocational training to Uyghurs. Various human rights organizations and media outlets demanded that the camps be open to the public to show their true purpose. Naturally, this never happened, but further satellite imagery revealed in a 2018 BBC News expose showed the detention facilities growing rapidly in size over a brief period of time. While men and women were confined to these facilities, children suffered a similar fate in quote-unquote schools, with prison-like surveillance, and even 10,000-volt electric fences. Despite public outcry from many countries in the West against the oppression and genocide of the Uyghurs, majority Muslim nations in the Middle East have been surprisingly quiet on the matter. No doubt this is due to the diplomatic ties many of them share with China, as well as the socioeconomic benefits and relationships they possess. As of 2019, it's believed that over one million Uyghurs have been systematically exterminated by the People's Republic of China. No doubt that number has increased since then, but luckily, more and more defectors have made their way to freedom in several parts of the world and are speaking out against these heinous crimes. Will the genocide ever end? One can only hope and pray, but first and foremost, China must be held accountable and be forced to stop the evil acts that they're carrying out against one of the largest and most persecuted ethnic groups within their country. Thank you so much for listening. I do so hope you found this episode educational and informative. Of course, the Uyghur genocide continues up to the present moment, but you can help by spreading the word. There are several projects and organizations that have been established to raise awareness of the genocide in Xinjiang. The Uyghur Human Rights Project, Save Uyghur, and the Green Star Project are just a few of them. Check them out for yourself and find out how you can help. Be sure to give them a follow on any and all social media platforms as well to be kept updated on the latest news on the crisis. Thank you for tuning in to the History Loves Company podcast this week. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for another brand new episode. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.